I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There you are. Yes, it's me, Joe Haddow, and welcome to another episode of Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. In this episode, I'm joined by two brilliant authors whose writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The Guardian, The New York Times, and granted to name just a few. My first guest published his debut collection of short stories, Mothers, earlier this year, which was longlisted for the Folio Prize and the Edge Hill Prize. His debut novel is due to be published sometime soon. Chris Power, welcome to Book Off. Hello. Lovely to see you. And my second guest joins us all the way from America and has just published Furious Hours, which is an incredible story of a serial killer and his murder trial woven with an account of Harper Lee's quest to write another book. Welcome to you, Casey Sepp. Thanks very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Sorry, um, I was going to say sorry you had to sort of trudge through the rain and the streets of London, but maybe you're a bit used to that from where you come from. <laughs> the rain, yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's familiar <laughs> weather and, you know, I'm near enough to D.C., familiar protesting. It just kind of wafts across the Chesapeake Bay. You can <laughs> learn about the political climate by stepping outside your door. So you were battling protests to get to the studio, were you, today? A little bit, yeah, yeah a little bit. Walked up from Westminster and had a look at, you know, what's going on in the world and, you know, these brave people trying to do something about the climate and save the rest of us while we just go about our days. Mm. And fair enough, you know, some EU folks rallying in front of Downing Street. So, yeah, braving the weather, braving the world, persisting. Good on them, I say. Yeah. Good on them. While yeah, we no sit kidding. in the in the warmth of this studio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Depleting the world's energy supply. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and Chris, you haven't come quite as far for this recording being a, a fellow Hackneyite as, as I am. No, I did come by public transport, though. Very good. Um, yeah, no, it was uh, it was a short short hop from home. <laughs> um, and what we're going to do in this episode is, as we do with every book off, talk about your latest books, talk about your writing, and also there will be the book off at the end of the episode where each of you gets three minutes on the clock to pitch us and the lovely listeners a book that you love, not your favourite book, but a book that you love that you think we should all read, and we'll find out what they are a bit later on. Uh, Casey, could I come to you first to talk about Furious Hours, which came out in May? Um, this is just quite a, a remarkable story. So where did it all come from? Yeah, fair enough. So this this book is sort of interesting. The, the first two-thirds of it really are about this murder trial and this series of murders that took place in the 1970s in a small town in Alabama, one of these deep south states. And it was already a notable case in, in this part of the world. People had followed it. It was quite sensational. A Baptist minister accused of killing five of his family members for the insurance money. And he was gunned down at the funeral of his last victim by another relative of that person. And the vigilante's trial was just a sensational as all of the murder investigations that had come before. And, you know, the life insurance, which had been the putative motive for those murders, continued to be scrutinized and talked about. And so it was already well known. But then Harper Lee, the woman who'd written To Kill a Mockingbird, found out about the case and moved to this town just the way she had with Capote out in Kansas to work on In Cold Blood and spent nine months in town and many years after that trying to write a book. And so for me, you know, the the murder trial and, and the murder stories were interesting enough, but you add Harper Lee to the mix and suddenly it's a it's a deeper more interesting 
interesting story about the kinds of stories we tell and who gets to write them and how difficult they are when they come together. And um, for Harper Lee's um, concerns, this was the opportunity to sort of remedy some of the um, ethical objections she'd had to In Cold Blood. So Mm. there's this other dimension, which I think is quite topical today, about um, true crime and how it is we write it and once again the kinds of stories that get told and kind of messy ethics of looking at these dark dark parts of our life as a, as a society trying to make peace with one another and get along and find justice and, and find a way to hold people responsible for the things they do and understand why they do them. So mm. there's a lot going on for her which is um, you know then understandably why she doesn't seem to have finished the book. <laughs> and what what made you or what was the spark that that you thought I'm going to do this I'm going to Yeah, this great question. So I I had loved Harper Lee's work when I was a kid and I I feel kind of lucky we all hope to get to grow up and write about the things we care about as children and um I was able to do it. (laughs) So I I went to the town where Harper Lee was born and raised, which is another small town in Alabama. And I was working on a story for The New Yorker about um, her second novel, Ghost at a Watchman, which I I think made the splash here that it did in the U.S. It did, yeah. Five decades, Harper Lee had said she was never going to publish another book. And then the year before she died, she announced she was publishing another book. And so I went down to write a story about Ghost at a Watchman. And and while I was in Alabama, found out about this other book she had tried to write. And you know, what was interesting is because Harper Lee was going to write about the Reverend Maxwell, the alleged serial killer, it meant no other writers really had bothered to. She was kind of squatting on the story. (laughs) And, you know, no one wanted to put too much work into this case because you didn't want to be scooped by Harper Lee. And, you know, your book didn't stand a chance if Harper Lee's was going to come out. And I had learned enough about kind of, you know, where she was in her life. And it seemed very unlikely she would, in fact, publish The Reverend if she had, in fact, written it. And, of course, the the real difference was I could write a book that included her, which she was such a pathologically private person, she would never have made herself a character in the book. Mm. And so unlike some of the true crime stories we read today where the journalist is very much a part of the story and even podcasts, which sort of build in a subjectivity from the person investigating it or trying to make sense of what had happened, Harper Lee was just never going to do that. Mm. Um, so it seemed like there was a book to be written that included her, and, and that's what I spent a few years working on. And it's been a pleasure to go around talking about it because it's the chance to talk about her and to talk about true crime and to talk about literary biography because I, I think for me it was an exciting way to tell the life story of a writer without telling that ex- exclusively. And a way so often those biographies are about the kind of success of a writer's life, you know, the books we know. Mm. And, and this was the chance, first of all, to just look at this kind of unknown part of her life. Um, no, no one had really followed this case after, you know, people in the local area had, but the kind of national and international community hadn't. And, and moreover, it was the chance to just look at failure and unfinishedness and um, the, the kind of ambitious project of a writer who's most known for her successful book and, and the chance to really look at, well, what happened after that? Mm. It's a brilliant book. And I want to talk more about that sort of explosion of true crime a bit later on as well. Um, Chris, you, you've been to that part of the world down in Alabama? I've been through it on an Amtrak train. I kind of, uh, I studied in the States uh, for a year. I was in Illinois back in the 90s. And I, uh, at the end of that year, I got a train from, I think, Chicago down to Washington and then went through um, Alabama and mm. down to Louisiana and across the panhandle and up. You might end. well have been on that train with Harper Lee. The thing to tell you is she was terrified of airplanes, so oh, she, right. she traveled almost God, exclusively by Amtrak. So, you know, <laughs> you'll have to really search your memory once there, yeah. was there a, little, a little lady. Okay, next time I tell that story, accent. I'm going to be like, and it was amazing. Because yeah, Harper Lee was, was uh, on the yeah, observation I like deck, it. hanging yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> was she writing it as a, was it going to be a novel or was it going to be... Sort of. Yeah. So interestingly enough, she um, she started out very insistent that it was true crime and that um, she went around kind of banging the drum of accurate journalism and mm. nonfiction of the old fashioned kind. And again, she had made so much about her objections to what Capote had done and the fabrications and the elaborations of In Cold Blood. So she she set out to do the opposite and insisted it was just going to be straight nonfiction. Mm. Um, but but there's a little bit of, of the book that exists, and, and that seems to be fictionalized. At least it's changed some character names and added a little bit of a backstory. And so at some point in her frustrations, it seems like she at least entered 
entertain the possibility of a novel, which makes sense. That's all she mm. had written up to that point. She had helped Capote with In Cold Blood. And, you know, she'd worked some as a, as a, as a journalist in college, and her father had owned a newspaper, so she was familiar with the techniques of nonfiction. Mm-hmm. But to that point, the only books she had written were novels. So it seems like at some point when she couldn't find enough facts and when enough of the original story didn't come together, she, she seems to have toyed with a novel, too. Mm-hmm. What do we think of In Cold Blood? Are we, are we fans? I've never read it. <gasps> oh gosh, funny. Never Just, but was there any pressure to? Not, you know, like well, as it come up at various points. Not, or? Maybe it was like reverse pressure because it was. It was <laughs> my mum cited it as one of her favourite books. Um, huh. I, that sounds like my mum's not around. She is around, but I remember her <laughs> talking to me about it when I was a teenager, I yeah. guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know. A description of it now would make. I would think that teenage me would have been like all over that, like a mm. rash. Yeah. It, sounded, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds great. But I, I don't know. I, I think sort of the moment passed me by and then I was off into the beats and I was into, you know. Do you know Capote's fiction, though? I'm so curious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've read, uh, yeah. I used to have a, a reader that had a, a lot of his short stories in it and sort of some of uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. It oh, was, sure. It was like, uh, mm. yeah, it was a Penguin edition. Here we, we're recording this in Penguin, so it seems appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I knew the short stories, but yeah, never read, never read in Cold Blood. Because I only read it a couple of years ago, but I loved it, mm. absolutely loved it, and I didn't, I wasn't quite ready for it. I, d- I mean, I was, I didn't really know what to expect. Mm. I just knew that it was one of those texts that everyone says, you know, in Cold Blood, mm. and I just thought, right, got to get round to it. And uh, I really did lap it up, actually, I have to say. Yeah, it's quite seductive. I mean, yeah. It's a beautifully written book, and you know, it 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 provides satisfactions that a lot of true crime nonfiction doesn't because it it offers all the answers and it Mm -hmm. really does sort of give you um, everything you would want to know about what happened. Um, You know, he gets into the mind of the murder victims and he gets into the minds of the killers. And, you know, it's it's kind of obvious once you learn about the publication history that some of that is necessarily fabricated and exaggerated (laughs) and liberties were taken, as as we say. And also that, you know, he was this tremendous fiction stylist. And so in some ways just couldn't resist doing what he did so well elsewhere in in, in Cold Blood. Mm. So, yeah, I'd say, um, how about Tortured Fan? That's what I'll, I'll say. Uh, <laughs> okay. I really like it. I, I had this kind of disastrous experience. I don't know how much you read short stories when you're working on yours or novels when you're working mm-hmm. on your longer fiction works. But at some point I reread In Cold Blood thinking, okay, I'm, I'm at the writing stage. I want to just look at it again and just thought, oh, gosh, I have to stop. It's too <laughs> really? good. I'll never, I'll never, <laughs> I'll never be able to provide this much information about my case. And, you know, I'll, I'll never be able to offer these kinds of resolutions. So I put it down and then, you know, went back to reading like 19th century labor histories of Alabama. And, you know, that felt easier to top. Uh, yeah. yeah. But do you read? Do you read much when you're working? Yeah, I do. I, I, I imagined um, Mothers of my, is, is my first book. And I imagined when I was sort of in the latter stages of, of editing it that I would not read anything because I'd, I'd often heard writers say well I don't read any fiction when I'm writing fiction or whatever but um, I think during one edit I didn't read any fiction for like three months and that must be the longest I've never read fiction since I started huh. reading and I just couldn't hack it after that I kind of had to go back to it I kind of I don't know I've, I've been writing a novel for the last year and I haven't stopped doing anything i plan to be very ascetic and just me in the novel possibly <laughs> in a bare white space yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, you know, uh, read one tweet a day or something but um yeah i've just been reading everything saying yes to reviews doing sort of you know ah. mixing, mixing everything into the pot <laughs> with the sort of either you know foolish overconfidence perhaps that my you know my voice whatever it is will kind of be able to resist you know, yeah. influence. So I think for many years when I was younger, I was I was um, writing very fitfully, and I was writing very kind of, um, um, let's say, uh, plagiaristically. Maybe mm. <laughs> I think I was very much I was taking on the style of whatever really good book I just read recently, um, which now I think was sort of valuable. I think I was working a lot. I think of stuff what everyone does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so. And I think I think yeah maybe I've been through that and I can kind of resist it. I haven't I haven't noticed in the last few years anything so seductive that it's kind of really got its claws in something. I've suddenly caught myself like writing in that style. Um, 
I can totally believe it happens though. I can mm-hmm. I can totally believe I'm as open to it happening as anyone else. And I think it would be quite yeah, quite quite scary. You'd have to bring the shutters down on that. So I can appreciate yeah. you closing <laughs> the covers pretty fast. <laughs> Yeah. Well, let's talk about Mother's Chris, because um, as I said, it was published in, to great acclaim, long listed for those prizes, and um, it is your first short story collection. And Mother's is perhaps a slightly, um, not misleading title, that makes it sound wrong, but you know, it's, I hope not. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily what you'd think it's going to be about. No, yeah, I think uh, yeah, there have I have uh, had conversations with a couple of people who are like, "Why do you call this <laughs> mothers?" Expecting to be very, I don't know, overdetermined, or I'm not sure. I, I I didn't write to any theme. I mean, I wrote the stories over over quite a long period of time, several years, um, just sort of going story by story mm. um, without any other other thoughts in mind. But when I did start reading them together as a, as a body of work and as a collection I kind of it became apparent that I think sort of seven out of the ten stories mothers are very present in the text very present to me I think in a couple of those cases it's very kind of um subtle perhaps Mm. but they are they are present there um and not just mothers as characters but also um having a mother as well you know that's that's quite a relevant um theme in the book uh or something that recurs with and obviously everyone does have a mother and even if it's an absent mother that's still Mm -hmm. a large Mm -hmm. presence in someone's mind um but i think i think what i got most interested in in that in that aspect was the kind of idea um there's a there's a recurring character in the book a woman called ava and the first story in the book is about her childhood in sweden and then we uh in the middle story of the book, it's her as a as a young woman, and in the final story, her later in her life, um, and she uh, loses her mother quite young, just on the cusp of of sort of when you get to know that your mum's like a real person, you know, like your <laughs> yeah. mum's sort of uh, this this a mother is 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 a shape, yeah. and it's a thing, and if you're lucky enough to have sort of you know a present mother it's it's a hugely important um presence but you kind of as you get a bit older you suddenly realize there's this whole hinterland to this person that they are a person mm. you know? they're not just serving you your mother <laughs> yeah, serving you or, or berating you or whatever yeah. it is um but they they sort of conform to this in your mind this this rigid thing mm. um and that's always quite I find that quite a resonant part of like growing up when you kind of realize that these people have have three dimensions. And in my my mum's case, her her dad died when she was um, six. And it's been interesting as she's got older, she's 80 now, and she's sort of talked more and more in the last few years about her dad. And you can see how important he's always like been to her, even though they were mm. sort of together for such a tiny fragment mm. of her life. And in terms of sort of active memories, a, a really a real sliver of time. But a huge presence, um, and my wife's dad died when she suddenly, when she was young. These were both sudden, sudden deaths. Um, and so, uh, yeah, when I was when I was writing, particularly about that character Ava, this became a sort of um, a quite uh, active active theme as I was as I was telling her story. Mm. That mm. idea that someone's sort of had their relationship with someone truncated, and then when they in turn become a mother or become a parent um that's bound to sort of uh churn up some some mm. sort of uh fundamental yeah. uh, emotions do you know this poet kevin young do no you know? he's a nonfiction writer too his last book i think was called bunk and it was about uh-huh. a kind of history of these hoaxes and frauds and things <laughs> but kevin lost his father and he wrote a book of poems but he also put together an anthology of kind of grief and loss mm. and morning and I heard him interviewed about that anthology and he said this striking thing about how we have this notion of motherhood and fatherhood but he'd been so taken by the idea of sonhood that so <laughs> much of his identity was defined as being his father's son right and that a lot of what was lost was that relationship not just to each other but to the world as being defined as his mm. father's son and it was so striking because I I think 
very much the way the culture does. I, I think of my parents as parents and don't often think of myself as the daughter in relationship mm -hmm. to them. So it's always a kind of two-way relationship. It's quite striking to think yeah. about someone contemplating that both in loss and presence and in capitulation and you know mm. recurrence in that way. So it's quite beautiful to think about. Mm. And it is quite amazing to think about the sort of full circle of of that parenting oh, sure. and, yeah, yeah. And, and being a being a son or daughter you know it's it's the the looking up while they're looking down and then that shift and then the way that you sort of you end up looking after your parents essentially at the end you know that whole full circle thing is it recurs quite a lot in fiction i would say actually um it's it's quite a powerful thing to write about i imagine well yeah and turning into your parents as well <laughs> yes. i definitely noticed yeah. since i had kids and i'm uh I catch myself and I'm like, what am I? What did I just say? I'm, I, this is, this is crazy. I mean, if you want any arguments for kind of, uh, you know, inherited behaviours or, or DNA or whatever, it's it's right there. It's quite uncanny. <laughs> no test needed. Just look at <laughs> no, this. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. How have you found? I know you're work. You said you're working on on your first novel, which is really exciting. Mm. How how have you found um, changing your writing style from from short stories into prose, or is it not really? affected you um it's definitely affected me i think um no i, I mean I, I find all writing uh, difficult so i don't really <laughs> hold to the uh, i don't hold to the kind of thing you hear about you know short stories being the hardest form because every word has to count or whatever I, I think it's all i think it's all pretty tough whatever you're writing but i think it's i, I guess the biggest difference is the sort of uh, is the the endurance and the, the marathon aspect of it because um you know, with a short story, you can you can probably tell within a few weeks if it's going somewhere. Right. It might take you years to complete it, and it might be a success or a failure, but you can mm. kind of see if there's something mm. basically workable in there. Um, with a novel, I've found there was a much longer period of kind of really not being uncertain whether the whole thing was just gonna gonna fall apart or not. And you just kind of have to have to tell yourself to to get through it and, and get the first draft done and then see see where you're at you know so there was a greater a greater period of uncertainty I'd say but yeah. otherwise putting the marks on the page is pretty pretty much the same mm -hmm. and Casey how how long a journey was this book for you um, so I started the book in 2015. Uh, I wrote a short article for The New Yorker about the Maxwell case, which is the kind of serial killer story at the beginning, and, mm. and then just realized how much more there was to say about that and about Harper Lee's work on it. And um, yeah, it's so funny, you know, the poor fiction writers are interrogated all the time, but mm. no one goes around, you know, pressing journalists on, is there a difference between an article and a book? <laughs> how do you know which is which? And, you know, it's just sort of, it's more permissive to move between the two. Like, you know, I say, oh, it started as an article and I expanded into a book and people kind of nod along like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But if you were to say, you know, it was a short story and then I moved, they say, how did you know? And yeah, at what moment? Sure. And, you know, some hey, Casey, of that. Uh, is, was it hard to go from yeah, an article exactly, to exactly. writing a whole like, book? Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, it's just path dependent with nonfiction. It depends on how much sourcing comes together, mm. you know, who'll talk to you, what documents turn up, who's alive and who's not. And um, so I was really lucky. It, it turned into a book when I just realized there were so many more people to talk to and um, friends of Harper Lee's who, friends and family of Harper Lee's who had never talked about her before were suddenly willing to and um, more of her letters turned up. And mm. for me, those are the things that um, made it worthwhile and, you know, it seemed very early on there was going to be a lot more to say about her and that the book would kind of work as a whole. Hmm. Um, and then, I mean, I, I certainly agree. You just have to put one word at a time on the page, no matter what you're writing. Hmm. Um, I don't think I experience it quite as hard, but it is, of course, the endurance of a book. You know, you have to put more of them down at some point. And um, it was quite interesting for me because the last third of the book is about Harper Lee, and she is someone who was a very tortured writer and suffered from writer's block and suffered from depression and had a drinking problem. And, you know, all of these things just went round and round and um, contributed to one another and ultimately it just really thwarted her productivity. And um, at some point I realized that was going to be kind of the trickiest thing for me to write. I thought we had so much in common. Yeah. I thought it would be easy. I'm a writer. She's a writer. I would just write about writing. And she just had a very different experience of it. And I think that even more than some of the true crime stuff, you know, writing sensitively about someone's death or accurately about 
murder accusations or a trial. The actual um, kind of hard writing was about her and making it emotionally interesting because, again, mm. this book in some ways is very much about failure. Um, and for me, writer's block feels like paint drying. So it was sort of like, well, how do you make this interesting? And how do you get people emotionally involved in, in her work and in the kind of less successful period of her life? Um, but at the end of the day, I was just glad that that's the kind of story of her, not me. It wasn't contagious. <laughs> yeah. I didn't feel yeah, yeah. any differently about my work after having <laughs> written about hers. She is yeah. quite amazing, really, in the, in the sense of her of her fame and that one book, that one book, and yet, you know, that is, Bargo said a watchman, what she wrote. That's yeah. what she wrote up right up until, as you mm. mentioned, her death. Yeah, it's the- really nutty. These people who knew her. So Harper Lee lived most of her adult life in New York City. Um, right. You know, she went back and forth to Alabama, but she, she had an apartment on the Upper East Side. She actually lived for a little while with Hall and Oates, the <laughs> musicians. Yeah, not, not in the same apartment, but in, the same, in the same building. And then, um, you know, her fame is interesting. Manning I bring. No, I wish, right? I wish that had been the outcome of my research. No, in fact, what I was about to say in terms of her fame is, in fact, they they had no idea who she was. They right. lived on the same mm. floor of this building in New York and long after Mockingbird, and they had no idea because she was this inconspicuous middle-aged and then elderly woman. And she was famous in the sense that anyone could have told you her name, the name of her novel, and probably have recapitulated most of the plot for you, yeah. if not from the novel than from the film adaptation. And yet she was mostly anonymous in New York. She's better known in Alabama. Um, you know, people recognized her. People in that town it was so small they knew what she looked mm. like and watched her age. But in New York, at least, you know, she could go drinking in bars and make a scene, and no one knew it was the author of *To Kill a Mockingbird*. Which is what she liked. Which is what she scene. liked about it exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it is just extraordinary to think about. You know, and since my book has come out, I I thought I had thought every possible thought about Harper Lee. But now that the book is out, I just think so much about she was 34 years old. She had never published anything, you know, she, truly not even a short story. She had some things in the college literary magazine, mm. but that book came out and it was instantly successful. It's mad, isn't and then it? it was relentlessly successful mm. and it sat on the bestseller list. And then, right when it should have dropped off, the film came out and it went yeah. right back on. Yeah. And then the international edition started. And by that point, it was on school syllabi. So everyone continued to read it and just relentless. It really, it is truly, you know, she's an example of getting everything you might have ever wanted and then not knowing what to do about it. Yeah. And getting it all in just one fell swoop as well. Mm-hmm. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. First novel all in a concentrated amount of time, you know. Right. You can see why it was hard to, to try again. I bloody love The New Yorker. And I, I read it every week. And I tell you one thing, Casey, I cannot for the life of me, I try every week to get on that caption competition at the back. Oh, and, gosh. And I yeah, I wish I could give you get... advice or an insider's <sighs> track to, yeah. I thought you'd the have some The truth is I don't of... even get the captions. Like, half the time I, I could never submit one because I, I find them to be the most inscrutable part of the magazine. That, you know, I sort of think I look at one and find it funny and then read the caption and realize I have no idea what it's about. It's so, too, yeah, it's gone find beyond. Find another writer to talk to, yeah. <laughs> but you do, yeah. you, you contribute relatively regularly to The New Yorker? Yeah, um, and and mostly um, book reviews and and um, arts coverage like that. Occasionally a reported piece. And um, actually, I think when we when we get to book off, I'm gonna um, uh, try and try and get my homework to count double, get double credit. Um, I'm working on a profile of a writer, and I'm gonna talk about um, one of one of my favorite books of hers because um, I've been rereading a lot of her work, and it's just a tremendous pleasure. It's a place where you know you're. It's not what Orwell said about book reviewing. You really just have weeks to dig into someone's all of their work and mm. learn about their life and think about what they're doing. And you know, I just I feel like it's it's what I would it's what I wish for and got with a couple of reviews of my book. Just someone who spent time thinking and delighting in it and kind of figuring out how it works. And um, I like to be able to do that for other writers. And yeah. it's nice sometimes with nonfiction, you feel like you're doing it mostly for readers of The New Yorker. You know, you're doing the hard work of, I just finished a piece on Thomas Edison, which required reading three biographies of <laughs> Thomas Edison. And you think no one in their right mind is going to go read three, you know, reading two others in order to review the one 800 page biography. And then reading, you know, actually Thomas Edison just produced millions of pages of diaries and patent notes and things and yeah. so I looked at some of those and you know it's just like a mini seminar on Edison. And but the, we really appreciate yeah. it. I hope so. <laughs> yeah exactly. It's hard won facts in that piece but no it's, it's a pleasure I feel like you know I loved school and 
writing for the New Yorker is like you never left school. You just keep taking these courses on different things. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, you write your paper at the end and, you know, it's better than school. You get paid for it. You don't have to pay for it. <laughs> exactly. You, so. yeah. Yeah. And very grateful to you as well, Chris, for your column, The Guardian column, because we, there's many discoveries have been made from well, your short story column. Nice of you to say so. It's taught me a lot as well. I um the Casey, I've written this this column on a short story for like ten years for the Guardian about um, misguidedly called a brief survey of the short story, which, <laughs> which it was going to be uh, ten years 10, ago. Seemed like a good idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, I'll do this till Christmas. It'll be fun. <laughs> um, where each one like looks at a different short story writer and just just so I kind of deep mm. dive into their work and um, and discuss them and uh, the life if it's relevant, but mainly the the work. Um, and yeah, it taught me a huge amount because mm. when I started it, I was like, well, I know about 12 writers I could probably write, you know, yeah. an essay mm. on. Um, but I quickly ran up against the limits of my knowledge or ignorance. I'm not sure which <laughs> way to put it around. But, um, uh, and, then I, and then I started sort of, it was a great excuse to get round to writers that I'd mm. always meant to read sort of in depth but never had, you know, writers who I'd read a story or two but never mm. really dug down. Um, it was just wonderful because I think, I think any writer kind of does learn a huge amount from from reading. Um, you know, it's that combination of, of of what you read and 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 your life experience that kind of that kind of forges the the work. I think so. Um, yeah, Are they always loving? Is it always things you like, or do you sometimes get into? Yeah, and no, it's been interesting because in in some occasions you're kind of going in blind and going, well, this person's got an incredible reputation, so I assume I'll. Mm-hmm. like them you know and I guess when you're looking at someone's like the most recent one I did was uh, Nadine Gordimer mm, and she yeah. wrote over 200 short stories I mean she really sort of she sort of thought in short stories at various points in her career towards through the sort of late 70s 80s the novel sort of took over more um, but uh, but her quality control was kind of all over the place because she was just interested in sort of transforming things into stories and some of them really hit home and some of them last and some of them are just quite ephemeral um and that's a kind of slog when you're maybe reading you know 12 collections together that weren't designed to be collect read together maybe even the stories within a single collection weren't designed to be read Mm -hmm. together um you kind of bear that in mind and then and then where relevant you can discuss the bad work but more often focus on the stuff that's that's potentially going to gonna last the weird thing with her is that the one extant sort of collected just seems like a bizarrely bad collection of stories oh, it's, like, <laughs> it's like if this is what we're left with in Nadine Gordon's body there's a way better one out there that's, that's huh. not not collected so yeah. that's interesting too because a lot of stuff is sort of out of print you know I'm often you know borrowing in libraries or buying old secondhand um Editions where the where the glue kind of uh, stinks and the acid. On our, Americans yeah. have acid-free paper. We don't in this country. <laughs> no. so you buy an English secondhand book and it really smells like a secondhand book. Um, <laughs> you, yeah, know, you can, you you can know turn up got. some real stuff, and it shows you that it's not always the sort of um, you know the quality work tends to rise, but it's not always the case. Stuff mm. can get lost through the through the cracks. Or mm. you look at someone like Lucia Berlin, a whole body of work oh, can sure, get lost yeah. in the cracks. And sure. Thankfully. You well, know, I'm so curious. I'm I'm always such a slave to chronology. So much of what I write just has to go from, you know, the year it started mm. to the year it ended. And it's such a wonderful thing to think about if you're a short story writer and you get to put together a collection or mm. midway through your career you're assembling, you know, some kind of selection. Do you think do you think short story writers have much self-knowledge about that? Like do you think if you were talking to Nadine about her work, she would say, oh, right, I knew at the time that was rubbish and I can't believe they put it in. Or do you think there are things that just sort of yeah, that's our a good sense point. of them changes? I don't know. I know some of them, things. like Frank O'Connor, for example, a great, uh, mm. you know, New Yorker, many times published in the New Yorker, um, sort of almost completely rewrote some stories when he was assembling a, a collected mm-hmm. um Whereas others were kind of like that works, that work, and they'd focused on what they're doing what new now. Things. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some, it was still very much alive, and they wanted they wanted to present it, and obviously present it in the best possible light, and were still self-critical and still self, um, uh, you know, sort of putting themselves through the through the motions. The interesting thing with that is that you're not necessarily a better judge. At a later date, sure they were. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know it. I mean, I I ask that out of genuine curiosity. I know 
you know, obviously a lot of poets do that. And I'm mm. thinking of Yeats who just tinkered endlessly yeah. and, mm. um, you know, changed the order, changed the content. And so I know it from that realm of things that there's there's a lot of fussiness and discontent mm. that's not settled by publication. So I wondered if yeah. for short story writers yeah, and the I temptation think, was to tinker too. I think there's quite a wide array also. There are some writers who kind of think of short stories as, you know, pieces for the left hand and their and their mm. novel is where their their novels are where their their main focus is. Mm-hmm. Um but then those ones tend not to have huge sort of bodies of work that you want to return to necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um I mean there are some out there who I think wrote some very fine short stories but aren't best known for them. Like Samuel Beckett even oh, sure. sort of, yeah, yeah. You know, wrote yeah. incredible short stories, but he's yeah. sort of much more famous for his for his plays, probably because yeah. In that regard, he felt compelled to kind of go everywhere where they were doing productions and kind of make sure they got them right. So he right. devoted much more of his life to yeah. that, even though he considered himself a prose writer first and foremost. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a mixed bag. <laughs> each writer, each writer has their their, their foibles. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, well, it's time for the book off now then, where each of you is going to get three minutes, if you need all three, to tell us about <laughs> a book that you absolutely love. So before we get into it, Casey, can I ask what book you're putting forward for the book off? Yeah, so um, this, is, uh, this is Marilyn Robinson's first novel. Um, it's called Housekeeping. Okay. Yeah. And Chris, what about you? Uh, a novel called Sudden Death by Alvaro Enrique. I feel like you've chosen this intimidating title. You've already won. (laughs) I went with you to loving and domestic and tender. Yeah, right. The gloves are off now at this part. (laughs) Um, So, Casey, would you like to go first or second? Uh, I'll go second with sudden death on the table. (laughs) Give myself Uh, all the time. In which case, Chris, would you like to be honked out or rung out at the time? I think I will have to be hung- honked. You can be honked. <laughs> can I be honked? You can be honked as well if you want, yeah. Um, I am going to put three minutes on the clock. Uh, as I said, you don't have to use them all, but when you get to that three minutes, I'm going to be honking you out, all right? So it's over to you, Chris Power, okay. to tell us about Sudden Death by Alvaro Enrique. Okay, thanks. So uh, Alvaro Enrique is a Mexican writer. I think he's based in New York. Uh, I read this book in English because I am a monoglot, and it's uh, beautifully translated by Natasha Wimmer, who's uh, translated Roberto Bolaño, amongst others. Um, So this book takes as its sort of central event a tennis match played on the streets of Rome in 1599 between Caravaggio, the Italian painter, and Francisco Cavedo, the Spanish poet. Um, This match is actually being played as a duel, as a point of honour at stake, uh, the, what that is isn't revealed until deeper in the book, so I won't reveal it. But um, the important thing is they're playing with a tennis ball that's stuffed with the hair of Anne Boleyn, hair that was shorn from her head on the morning of her execution, what, 60 years earlier. Um, and what Enrique does is he uses this this object, or actually the set of tennis balls, um, and they're 
journey across Europe and actually across the globe during that 60-year period to uh, dive into all sorts of uh, subjects like the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, the history of art, the history of music, um, and most importantly of all, the conquest of, of New Spain by Cortes and the conquistadors and this flow of, um, of wealth, of material and mineral wealth into Europe that kind of shaped the, um, shaped the modern world for centuries to come. So it's kind of a chamber piece, you know, it's very, it's very uh, unambitious. Um, what's really amazing is the way he, he's a really fleet writer, like p- parts of this are kind of about him in the New York Public Library researching, uh, so it's got this sort of auto-fictional element. Some of it uh, reads like uh, essays, some of it's very journalistic, some of it's like a realist novel, you're kind of with Caravaggio, you know, in his studio, you can smell the the temper on the canvas and the sweat on his robes and the semen on his robe. There is quite a lot of semen in this, but it's pretty, uh, <laughs> it's pretty bawdy. Um, but the really interesting thing is also it was written in 2013. I think I read it first in 2016 or 17. I read it again earlier this year, um, and it does seem like one of those sort of regenerating books. It's really about um, you know fundamental. Themes like power and politics, and um, there's a great uh, there's a great line in it about the the pool of blood and shit that history leaves when it goes mad, which um, which doesn't seem inappropriate for the times we're living in. So I think it's uh, I think it's one of those books that will continue continue to give more and more as time passes. Very good. Woo. Just sort of looked looked at me as I grabbed for the horn, as it were, and thought. <laughs> And you were like, I'm just going to bring this home. <laughs> uh, fantastic pitch and love, love, love the sound of that. We'll talk about it in a moment. But now you can have a breather, have a sip of that coffee. Um, Casey, it's over to you. I'll put three minutes back on the clock and you're going to tell us about housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. Yeah, the truth is I, I, I wanted to talk about housekeeping because I think that Marilyn Robinson is probably best known in the UK for her least known book. Um, she wrote this strange nonfiction book, Mother Country, about a nuclear power plant um, in in the Lake District, and it was quite controversial. And um, she was sued by Greenpeace, and I'm not even sure it's much read here anymore. But it it made her name in a strange way because for most Americans, she was known for this perfect novel she published in 1981 called Housekeeping. And she's truly a writer who came out of nowhere and arrived in the middle of her life with this just extraordinarily beautiful book. And I knew that I loved it. I loved it when I first read it. But she went on to write um, a trilogy of novels about um, the first was called Gilead. And then she wrote two others, Lila and Home, about a town in Iowa and um, some interesting religious characters, some of whom were born religious, some of whom converted, one of whom's a pastor. And the first of those novels, Gilead, is an epistolary book that's quite beautiful, a sort of end-of-life letter by a pastor to his son. And so I fell in love with those because I'm I'm interested in theology, and they're very sophisticated and philosophical. And um, so I had forgotten how much I liked housekeeping, but because I'm rereading all of her work, I, I sat with housekeeping recently and realized it is exactly the same as those later novels, but just quietly and and even more deliberately so. And um, you know, it's if you like American literature and you know the transcendentalists, what she went and did was transplant transcendentalism west of the Mississippi. And it's it's a book mostly about three women. So she looked at that New England tradition and says, you know, okay, I'll I'll take Emerson and I'll take Melville, but I will take their style of writing and their philosophy and their kind of threadbare Americanism and and just transplant them to a small town in Idaho and make them all women. So it's two <laughs> sisters and it's kind of a matrilineal story and they're they're being raised at this particular moment when we meet them by a kind of nutty aunt of theirs and so the housekeeping of the of the title is true there's a lot about making a home and figuring out who your family is and how to relate to them but there's this deeper sense of you know, tending the hearth and figuring out who you are in the world. And it's just extraordinary. And I, I can't think of another book that does it so well without having to resort to kind of characters who are philosophers or clergy, which she does in these other books. But, you know, these three plain women just wrestling with 
loneliness and identity and self-reliance. And it is just so beautifully done. And it, and it takes the natural world of the West, which I think is, you know, used often in, in ways that are violent and, and masculine and assertive and just looks at the home in places like that and how we can exist and how we can flourish as intellects in places that seem spare. So I would say if you haven't read it, just, just go and pick it up immediately. It's truly a perfect book. Wow, fantastic. Another brilliant pitch. There you go. Have some water, Casey. You're like, Ooh. It's true, yeah. For the mat, <sighs> okay, for Marilyn breathe. Robinson, I like it. As if she you know, needed me to go around evangelizing for her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, everyone needs a champion. Yeah, um, fair enough. Well, let's, I mean, let's talk about both of those because I absolutely love, Chris, the, the whole premise of this book that you've said, the tennis match, the characters in it, the power and the politics. And I've written in quite big letters, Bawdy. <laughs> Whereas I would have yeah. written down Caravaggio. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> you uh, he had was pretty, me at He was pretty yeah. bawdy. So yeah. 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 We yeah. meet in the middle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've also yeah. written Caravaggio in <laughs> slightly smaller letters. Um, <clears throat> but was this was this a, a book that you you just discovered by accident or just one that you'd heard about? How, how did you come to this book? Yeah, I think I just read... I don't think I even read, I think I started reading a review of it mm. and then I was like, actually I'm not gonna I really want to read this book just from the opening paragraph of this <laughs> review so I'm not gonna read anything mm. about it I'm gonna I'm gonna cause, you know normally the books that come to you kind of know a reasonable amount about yeah, yeah. yeah. it's actually one of the things I like about short story collections is some of the because even if you've read a review of a short story collection you're probably going to encounter a story within there that you have no preconceptions about which is so rare when you come to read anything so it's kind yeah. of very pure state of, of of reading um and this was the case of this i just i just love the the sound of it um it's i i really like that kind of uh it's one of those books that when you when you for the time you're reading it you almost turn into like a conspiracy nut you kind of see everything <laughs> through the filter of this book and you're like fuck that's it that's like this explains everything which he kind of plays it. i think he calls it a, a like sort of a, a machine for describing the world or something yeah. he's talking about yeah. novels as machines for describing the world um and because of all its sort of resonances the way you you start thinking like a, a crazy person i think because he talks about this uh this um this Aztec art, this sort of feather work that these Aztecs made for um, Catholic clergy, and they sent like mitres back to to Europe that, on receipt, like looked sort of these like these dull things. And Catholics were used to like, I mean, I was raised Catholic. It's all like bling, you know. It's all like <laughs> like wax and gold on that liturgical and camp. So, yeah, 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 liturgical yeah. camp. So they were looking at it like, what's this? But it was this is this feather work that when it's when it's in a certain light, when it's in sunlight, it becomes kind of iridescent, and it's these incredible mm. emblazoned kind of um, works that um, that sort of you know wowed people and 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 he talks a lot about the sort of you know the the imposition of you know catholicism mm. on the aztecs there's a great story in there about how a a catholic priest kind of almost as sort of a model village he got these um these aztecs to create a version of thomas more's utopia um <laughs> the ironic thing being that this sort of you know this this text that's predicated on its kind of impossibility um actually mirrored a lot of the ways of the you know pre-conquistador ways of life in in, in the aztec <laughs> time before the conquistadors kind of you know screwed it up uh he's obviously he's a mexican writer so he's he's writing yeah. from that so it's a it's a mm. very political book sure. as well as a very mm. um bawdy one as well as bawdy <laughs> political and bawdy um and then over the other side housekeeping uh i just loved how how much you obviously love this book and and the rereading factor is sort of bringing it, you know, reminding you of it. It's yeah, although it's a corrective for me. I'm I'm a real creature of place, and I, I actually moved back to where I grew up, and it's one of the things that drew me to Harper Lee. I love Southern literature because it's so distinctive, and I think what must have been happening the first time I read Housekeeping as much as I liked it is it's a different region. It's mm. Western. It's Idaho. It's this place I don't even think I'd ever been to when I first read it, but it in, on returning to it, it's just... It does for that place what I hope to do for the places I love. You know, it yeah. just it just saturates you with, you know, you're talking about Caravaggio and, and the smell of the canvas. Mm. Suddenly you know what life is like in Idaho and what it would mm. be like to sit in a house that's empty all day and covered in dust or to walk into an orchard in, you know, the twilight and actually experience it. So it, it has the 
the kind of you know conjuring feeling that great fiction does. Mm. So I think that's the the thing I most liked about it when I returned to it. Yeah, yeah, it was more and charming than the first time even. You mentioned you know how it's an extraordinarily beautiful book, and also I did love that idea that it's it's about the West, but in, instead of what we're used to reading about that part of the country it's actually a bit softer and it's looking at a different yeah side of absolutely that life. i mean right cormac mccarthy it's like are there any women to be found <laughs> yeah, in those exactly, pages and yeah. marilyn robinson says like well look i'm gonna i'm gonna give you a matriarchy and <laughs> show you i mean it's not actually that you know it's it's actually women who for very tragic reasons have not been partnered or who lost their spouses or you know to go back to where we started with mothers it's it's about yearning to have maternal figures mm. even when there are mm. only women in your life or to understand your sibling in some way you're supposed to or yourself in a way that is it's assumed you will so yeah i like that about it it feels it's not as overtly political you know it's it's not consumed with what we typically talk about as politics but you know it's habitually political in that it tries to think about the self in the world and how yeah. the self should relate to other people so yeah and on top of that just exquisitely written you know i think we live in an age where you're supposed to say that about any novel you read, but it is actually deserved and true of hers <laughs> that they're just exquisitely written. Mm. Well, it's it, I don't know either of these books. I haven't read them. And, um, you know, it's it's great to hear two very different books and, and with the passion behind them. So I've got to choose one because, you know, that's the <laughs> game. Uh, and I, I want to read both of them. But I think on the pitch alone, uh, I'm going to take home... Sudden death for uh, for the boardiness, politics, like and Caravaggio. I like it. But I'm also just extremely intrigued to read Housekeeping now because I think you've you've <laughs> put Marilyn Robertson on the map. You can sober up after you read Sudden Death with Housekeeping. <laughs> exactly. Really. Yeah. 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 Um, and I'm going to read it. So everyone I know who's read Housekeeping and Gilead, they're the ones I've heard people talk about most, and they've just. Yeah. Everyone I know who's read them has just completely loved them. No one's gone like, oh, that was quite good. It's been like, <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's either rapturous or they never experience. mentioned but it. But you again. haven't yeah. read uh, yeah. Marion Robinson before? No. no, no. Okay, right. Well, let's get one each. Yeah, so okay. we can swap. Then we can Deal. swap after. Um, <laughs> no, I'll, let's buy both. Give her the royalty. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, she needs it from that Greenpeace lawsuit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's yeah. that's right. Yeah. Um, thank you both uh, so much for for joining us and for talking about your books and bringing your um, some of your favourite books to book off. What is uh, next for you both, Chris? I know you've you've been working on the novel, so that's that's sort of way in the future, I imagine. Still, is it? Yeah, it's uh, it's coming out in March 2021. So wow, I'm okay. working to deliver that by by the coming march and yep. then and then there'll be a year of you know associated gubbins <laughs> as as there is as <laughs> there is uh, and Casey you've been over for about a week or so and you're you're headed back to the states more projects in for books or are you sort of work, working on more articles when you get yeah there? I mean I I wish that I had a timetable uh with <laughs> with with such certainty no I I would love to write another book and I have an idea for one but um it's a lot of journalism in the meantime and Furious Hours is out now by Casey Sepp and Mothers by Chris Power is also out and they are both brilliant very different but both fabulous <laughs> reads which we can highly recommend Casey Chris thanks so much for joining us thank you yeah catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.